Welcome, greetings to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and hear his word proclaimed. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. This is the conclusion of what we have described as the upper room discourse, that crucial teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples on the eve of his betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection. It concludes in this passage. It's full of encouragement to us. So John 16, verses 16 through 33. Let's hear God's word together. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? He does not know what he, we do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she delivers the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full." I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's uh, pray together. Father, this morning we praise you and thank you for sending us a savior, for your son Jesus, who went to the grave for us, who suffered for us. And then having paid the price of our sins entirely, rose again to new life. We rejoice in his victory over death and sin and judgment and at his present rule over all things. Father, we confess that the gospel, the good news about your son, should cause our hearts to soar with joy consistently. We confess that so often our lives are marked by a grim joyless drudgery as we seek to serve you and others. Father, forgive us for our lack of joy in light of what you have done. 
Change us through your word and spirit that our lives might be consistently characterized by gladness, by rejoicing. Do this, Father, for the glory of your name and our good. Indeed, we pray, Lord, that you would take your word that you've given to us and use it uh, to transform our affections, to cause us to leave here with a deep passion for you and a deep delight flowing from what you have done for us. Grant your blessing on the proclamation of your word this morning. Amen. Uh, some of you may have either used the expression or have heard the expression used, crossing the Rubicon. Uh, nod your head yes, if that is in fact the case. There, there, there was an alarmingly large number of people who just stared when I said that, so I, was, I wasn't quite sure that that, that connected. Uh, crossing the Rubicon, of course, go, goes back to a very famous historical event. Uh, Julius Caesar, the great Roman general, conquered Gaul, or modern-day France. He was coming back to Italy with his army. And there's a little creek that separated Gaul from Italy, a little stream called the Rubicon. Now, if Caesar crosses that stream with his legions, with his army, he's going to be deemed an enemy of the state, a traitor, and he is going to unleash civil war. There's no going back if he crosses the Rubicon. And so that expression has come to mean an irreversible act. No more going back once you've made that act, and you have changed the situation because of that act. Things are different because of that act. We might say that when we marry, we in a sense cross the Rubicon. We slam the door shut to single life. It was behind us. We're single no more. And there's a new reality, a new situation. Someone is now committed to us and we are committed to them in marriage. There's no going back. The situation has changed. But we might say that the resurrection is in a profound sense a crossing of the Rubicon. There is no going back to what used to be. And the situation inaugurated by the resurrection has been decisively transformed. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we enter upon a new stage of salvation history. What the New Testament frequently calls the last days. And when we see that phrase in scripture, we tend to think of last days as that little snippet of time just before the second coming. And while it can be used that way, it's more consistently used to refer to the whole period between Christ's first and second comings. This whole period is the period of the last days. We are in the last days. And what inaugurates the last days is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we are taught in this passage this morning is what life will be like in this period between his resurrection and his second coming. He's about to leave his disciples, and so he tells them what things will be like after the resurrection. He tells them specifically that the resurrection will bring joy, the, the resurrection will bring fruitful prayer, clarity, and victory. Resurrection will bring joy, fruitful prayer, clarity, and victory, those four things. Jesus says to his disciples, in a little while, I'm going to leave you. And then again, in a little while, you'll see me. And characteristically, they don't understand. And their misunderstanding is emphasized. Verses 7 and 18 repeat the fact that they said at least twice, what does he mean? They said to one another, what does he mean by a little while? So their ignorance, their inability to discern what Jesus is saying is emphasized. Of course, we have the advantage of living on this side of the resurrection. And so we know what Jesus means. In a little while, he will no longer be with them because he will be betrayed, crucified, and he will die. 
and they will be separated from him. But then again, in a little while, from the time of his death to his resurrection, that's the time they will be without him, but that's also the space uh, between his departure and return. In a little while, they will see him again on resurrection morning and Easter. So a little while he's going, but in a little while he is coming back. That brief window of time between his departure and his return will be a time of great sorrow and spiritual turmoil for his disciples. Everything they thought they knew will be called into question. All of their certainties will be undermined. And there is a a, a time of confusion and turmoil, a time of sorrow. Look at verse 20. It's interesting to note that while they weep and lament because Jesus is gone, the world rejoices. The world in John's gospel refers to mankind and its opposition and rebellion to God. And notice the things that make the church weep and lament cause the world to rejoice and vice versa. This captures the fundamental distinction that exists between the people of God and the world. Those who belong to God live by a different system of values, have a different aim than the world. There is a radical difference between these two communities, such that what makes one rejoice causes the other to grieve. That should teach us is that if we find ourselves out of step with the values of the world around us, the priorities of other people, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's an inevitable result of this conflict that exists, this fundamental distinction that exists between the church and the world. So they will know a time of deep sorrow, unlike perhaps anything that ever known to that point or will know after that point. This will be deeply unsettling. And yet Jesus says, your sorrow will turn to joy. That sorrow is temporary. It is short-lived. You're going to see me again. He compares the joy of the resurrection to a woman giving birth. When a woman is in labor, there's nothing else that she can think about, right, than the sheer agony of bringing a human, human being into the world. The pain is excruciating, overwhelming. But when the mother takes that child squirming in her hands and she looks at that new baby, she smiles, and the joy of having brought a new life into the world swallows up the sorrow that, that preceded it. And so also Jesus is saying, the joy of Easter, the joy of the resurrection has the power to swallow up our heartaches and sorrows as we see the triumph of the king. Joy is coming and it will extinguish the sorrow. Indeed, the joy that the resurrection of Jesus brings is permanent, stable, and unchanging. I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. This is a tough, sturdy, resilient joy. If you try to build your joy on life's ever-changing circumstances, then you experience a modest bump in your joy when you get that raise or promotion at work and the inevitable collapse of your joy when you get unexpected bad news. Your joy will always be in flux if it's fundamentally grounded in circumstances. These always change. But if your joy is grounded in Jesus, in his victory, then that fundamental fact about the world, about God and yourself in relationship to God does not change. And that's solid ground for your joy. Those who have a deep confidence in the victory of of their king can live even in the midst of the challenges of this world with a persistent joy. A joy that transcends how things are going with us externally because it's grounded 
in Jesus. That's the joy that they will know. know. Uh, and they will know that joy because of their reunion with Jesus. They'll see him again. They thought they lost him, but when they see him again, they will be glad. And they will never again be separated from him. He will give them the Holy Spirit, which, is the, which mediates the presence of Jesus to his people. And they will be with him forever. The resurrection means that we will be with our Lord forever and nothing can separate us from him. The resurrection also means that sin and guilt and judgment have been decisively taken away. They lie there defeated in the tomb and Christ is victorious over them. Uh, our condemnation, our guilt, our judgment, our sin has been left behind in the tomb. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. It means that the power of sin and Satan over the people of God has been decisively broken. The resurrection means that there is life after the grave. Death doesn't have the last word. We will rise again, and we will experience God's new creation in all of its beauty and glory. The resurrection means that the age to come has come. It's kind of paradoxical, isn't it? That's how the New Testament talks about the age to come. The, new, the age to come comes in stages. And with the resurrection of Jesus, it is inaugurated. It dawns. It's not yet here fully, but it's really here. We experience, even in this life, uh, as Hebrews 6 puts it, the powers of the world to come, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the joy of that inaugurated kingdom. You know what that means? That means that this present evil nightmarish age is passing away. It will, and it will in a short time, yield to everlasting and eternal glory and joy. That's what the resurrection means. The dark, cold winter is passing and spring is coming. That's what we celebrate at Easter. Song of Solomon 2, 11 through 12. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. That's what the resurrection means. The time of singing has come. And so, of course, they're going to rejoice. And we ought to rejoice after the resurrection. This ought to be the persistent quality of our lives, the aroma of our homes. Think about how absurd it is to be joyless in light of that. Uh, how absurd it is to be joyless in light of that. Those are my thoughts here. Uh, okay, so think about what we confess. Uh, what the, the kingdom comes in stages. Perfection is not all at once, right? Uh, where was I? Something about joy. Uh, yes, it's all coming back to me. Uh, I'm, I'm a little distressed because I'm usually pretty good at just... Keeping the trend moving. Not so much today. Okay. The absurdity of joylessness in light of the resurrection. That's where we want to continue. Uh, on Sunday morning, we confess that we believe that the Son of God has been raised from the grave. Death has been defeated. The Son of God reigns over the nations. That's what we confess. Um, and on Monday morning, we grumble, complain about a job that we don't really like that much. On Monday morning, we unsay with our actions and attitudes what we said with our lips on Sunday. The resurrection is meant to give us joy. And, it, and joylessness, in light of this reality, is absurd. We're like that little boy at the uh, 4th of July celebration. 
He sulks because his brother got a snow cone and he didn't. He crosses his arms. His brow is contracted in a frown. He looks down at his shoes. He doesn't have a snow cone. And meanwhile, the night sky explodes with blues and reds and yellows and greens. A flaming fireball uh, rushes across the sky, and none of that is consoling to him. He doesn't have a snow cone. And so often we're that little boy. We don't have the house we want, the friends we want, the career we want. And so we sulk. Instead of looking up and seeing God's salvation realized in his son Jesus and rejoicing with an irrepressible joy. Chronic joylessness after Easter is absurd. Those who have experienced the salvation of God ought to rejoice from their heart. If we're joyless, it's probably because we've become spiritually myopic, focused on our narrow circumstances and not seeing the big picture. If we want joy, we need to take a step, step back from our circumstances and survey the cosmic situation. The king has come, he's died, he's risen, and he reigns at the right end of God, and we will have victory with him. When you see that, that's steadily in front of you, you will rejoice. Understand, by the way, that joylessness makes you ineffective in commending Christ to others. You might say that you believe in the resurrection, but when your joyless, grim attitude um, is perceived by your children, they see that while you might say you believe in the resurrection, you unsay it with your actions. Same thing holds true for your coworkers. If we want to be effective spokespersons for Christ, we need to be a rejoicing people, a people whose joy is fundamentally grounded in Jesus. Are you a joyful person? People around you say, yeah, there is a gladness that this person has that is not readily shaken by shifting circumstances. That's the joy that should characterize God's people. So the resurrection introduces a new era of rejoicing, of delight, uh, grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we want to note that the resurrection introduces an era of fruitful prayer. An era of fruitful prayer. Uh, look at verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Now, it could be that Jesus is saying in verse 23, up to this point in my earthly ministry, you've been asking things of me. But the time is coming, post-resurrection, where you, where you can go directly to the Father through me and get your, um, get your petitions answered. It's possible. And it makes good sense, and he says something like that elsewhere. But it's also possible, and perhaps even more probable, that Jesus is saying something else. Uh, do you remember that emphasis early on on the disciples' failure to understand, right? What does he mean by a little while? What is he saying? We don't understand. And that point is emphasized. They don't understand what, what uh, uh, Jesus is saying by a little while. And their ignorance is emphasized. So it could be saying, Jesus could be saying, in that day, you will ask nothing of me in the sense that all your questions will be answered. Right? right now, they've got all kinds of questions. What Jesus is saying isn't clear. Everything is kind of a mystery. It's cryptic. But Jesus is saying that the time is coming when you aren't going to need to ask anything of me because all of your questions will be answered by the resurrection. And that fits nicely also with verse 25, as we'll see in a moment. But leaving that aside, Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
Up to this point, his disciples haven't been praying in his name. On the other side of the resurrection, Jesus is saying, you will pray in my name, you will come to the Father, you will petition him, and what you ask for, he will give you. This is a promise for fruitful prayer. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. As as God answers one prayer after another, you will experience joy. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? In the first instance, it means to pray on the basis of what he has done. We don't come to the Father because we have any claims on the Father. We don't have authority to come into the very throne room of God on our own. We come because we have been cleansed by Jesus Christ of our guilt and sin. And in his name or in his authority, we have a claim, if you like, on God. We enter into his holy presence. To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray on the basis of what Christ has done and who he is. Secondly, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray in alignment with his will and priorities. What you are praying for is consistent with what he wants. We need to recognize that so often our priorities in prayer are about my needs, my comfort, my ease. Lord, give me, help me financially, help me with this or that. And there's a place for that. There's a, you know, the Lord's prayer includes a, a petition for our daily prayer where we bring our needs to the Lord. That's certainly legitimate. But the priority in the Lord's prayer is not first my daily bread. What is it? Thy kingdom come. The priority in prayer is for God's will to be increasingly accomplished in the world, for people to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and bow the knee. And that priority should be reflected in the way that we pray. Do you reflect on your prayers? Like what percentage of time when you do pray do you spend, Lord, I need this and I need that? That's legitimate. Versus what percentage of time do you, do you spend praying, Lord, I see this evil in the world. This thing that you abhor, change it, work to bring it down, transform circumstances. Lord, I look at these people who don't know you in my life, grant them salvation. Uh, Lord, take this person who's spiritually immature in my life and help them to grow up. What What percentage of your time in prayer do you pray like that? Kingdom prayers, mission prayers for the advancement of God's will in the world and the lives of others. John Piper has a place where he says uh, that we shouldn't treat prayer like a domestic intercom. You push the button and say, hey, can you get me my slippers? Can you bring me a snack? Make my life easy? Prayer is not a domestic intercom. It's a wartime walkie-talkie. Where we call the general and we say, put down fire over here and send reinforcements over there. The image I get is, you know, the soldiers in Vietnam in that sweaty jungle calling for reinforcements. That's, That's the picture of prayer that I think is biblical and right. Uh, We are praying for God's will to be done, for lives to be transformed, for his kingdom to come and advance. Is that how you are praying? As we pray that way, Jesus is saying we're going to see consistent, regular, specific, concrete answers to prayer, and our joy will be enhanced. As you live your life and say, Lord, I need to go talk to those kids right now. Help me to be calm and patient in the way that I talk. As you say, Lord, help me to lead my family in Bible reading and study tonight. As you say, Lord, heal my friend's marriage that's falling apart. As you pray, Lord, grant my neighbor repentance and faith. As we pray these prayers, Jesus says, don't be surprised when you consistently see answers. Don't be surprised when you can consistently draw a line from the prayer to a specific 
answer. That's normal in the Christian life. Normal in the age after the resurrection. If you've walked with the Lord any period of time, you, you know what Jesus is saying here. You've had plenty of those moments where you've said, Lord, I can't. I need you. I'm desperate. I don't have no idea how we're going to figure this out. And lo and behold, a solution presents itself. God makes a way forward. And not just once or twice, but regularly. Life after the resurrection is marked. Uh, this era is characterized as a time of fruitful prayer. We shouldn't be surprised. This, is, this addresses one of the obstacles, by the way, uh, to prayer. Sometimes, down deep in our hearts, there's unbelief, and we really don't, we're really not convinced that prayers do anything. We go through the motions of prayer, because we're supposed to, it's commanded by Scripture, but we have no sense that this is going to change anything, and we have no expectation that it's going to meaningfully change anything about our lives, others' lives, or the world go through the motions. And Jesus is challenging that. After the resurrection, ask and it will be given to you. Pray big prayers for God's power to be displayed and expect answers. Is that how you're praying? With a sense of quiet confidence in the Lord to bring about his purposes? Or are your prayers often marred by unbelief? You're, not, you're praying, but you don't really expect anything from God. Well, there's a second obstacle to prayer that Jesus addresses. Another way our unbelief expresses itself is that we don't, we doubt that God really wants to answer prayer. There's, a, there's something in us that says, you know, God is reluctant to answer prayer. He's stingy. And even if perhaps he likes to answer the prayers of others, surely that can't be true of me. Maybe you don't feel that way. That's good if you don't. So how does Jesus respond to it? In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. So look, you're going to come to the Father's very presence through me. But I want you to understand something. I'm not going to take your prayer and bring it to the Father as if you can't go directly to the Father. Because of what I've done, you have access to the throne room of God. And he wants you to pray to him. And he delights in your prayers. Why? He loves you. It's not just Jesus who loves us. The Father loves his children, delights in their prayers, and invites us to come to him with a, with a childlike confidence that our heavenly father is for us, loves us, cares about us, and will indeed answer our prayers. Do you come to God with, with a kind of unbelief that he's a, that a stingy ogre, unwilling to part ways with his blessings? Or do you come to God with a confidence that you're coming into the presence of one who loves you. This is a further spur and encouragement to pray. This passage invites us to pray and make prayer a central component of our walk with Jesus Christ, understanding that through the, it is through the instrumentality of prayer that God accomplishes his great purposes in the world. Do you believe that? And as we noted before, those who don't plan to pray won't pray. So make sure that you don't just have like a warm feeling in your heart that goes, I want to pray. But that warm feeling gets translated into some disciplined reflection about what specifically it will look like in the context of your life. Do it today if you haven't done so already. Okay. The resurrection will inaugurate a time of wonderfully fruitful petitions to God that he will answer for our joy. Third, the resurrection will inaugurate a time of clarity. 
Now, you see why that's valuable in light of their uh, inability to understand what Jesus is saying. What does he mean, a little while? What is he saying? And, and we've often seen them respond that way, haven't we, in the Gospels? The disciples, I don't, it's not clear what he's saying. We don't get it. Jesus is, is saying that the time of ambiguity and questions, uncertainty, will give way to a time of clarity, certainty, a time for answers. Look at verse 25. I have, said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The word translated figures of speech can, be, can simply mean obscurely. So I've, I've said these things to you obscurely. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in, in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The idea here is not that Jesus has been communicating obscurely and he'll start communicating clearly. That's not the point. The point is, after the resurrection, that event will clarify everything. Like throughout the ministry of Jesus, the disciples are wondering, what does that miracle mean? Or what does that uh, strand of teaching mean? There's, there's a, a uncertainty, ambiguity. So Jesus is saying with the resurrection, the plan of God is going to be unfurled for all to see. Then the questions will be answered. Then we will see God's plan of salvation, how it is realized, and where everything is going. The resurrection inaugurates a time of answers. I remember years ago, I think it was about like my first semester of college, when I was going through some mild, I would say, intellectual you know, turbulence, uncertainty. I remember going to an Easter service my pastor preached from Luke's gospel about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he says, look at these disciples, directionless, confused. They thought Jesus was the one, but he was killed on Friday, and now they, they have only questions and no answers. And then they encounter Jesus, and Jesus begins to teach them from the word, and then he reveals himself. And all of a sudden, everything has changed. They get it. The penny drops. And so these directionless wanderers become purposeful missionaries. They head back uh, to tell the other disciples about what they have seen. They have, get, they have gotten clarity. Their questions have been answered. Uh, they know now what God has done. The resurrection means that the, the big questions that we have about life, about God, about his saving plan, about where things are going that we can have certainty concerning those things. This is solid ground for us to build our lives on. That hunger that human beings have for truth and certainty is satisfied in Jesus. It's especially important for us to recognize as modern people because what characterizes many modern people is a despair of really knowing truth. A despair of being able to answer with any kind of certainty life's big questions. Where have we come from? What is the purpose of life? What is God like? What is wrong with humanity? How has God acted to put it right? Where is human history going? Like these are great unknowns for most people. And the idea is that we simply can't know. At best, we can get other people's perspectives, but we can't know truth. We are left forever asking questions to a dark void, but getting no answers in response. And John is saying the very opposite of that. When Jesus rises from the grave, rules over the nations, we have found truth, a solid ground on which to stand. 
We know what God is like, what his purposes are, and how to find our way out of this nightmare that our sin has created. We can have certainty that hunger for truth can be satisfied. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, what Jesus is saying through, to you through this passage is that you don't need to live in deception and darkness and lies anymore. By trusting in Jesus Christ, you experience the forgiveness of your sins, peace with God, and truth, truth you can build your life on, the relief of knowing the answers to life's big questions. So trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King. The resurrection inaugurates a time of clarity, and the resurrection brings victory to the people of God, the last thing we see in this passage. So, let's follow the argument so far. A time of clarity and fruitful prayer is coming. The disciples. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Do you notice the problem? Jesus is saying, a time is coming, future, for clarity. They think it's arrived, right? And so, okay, now, we, now everything's clear. It's not clear yet. They've missed the point. Uh, it's coming very soon, but it's not here yet, and they fail again to understand. Hence the need for clarity. Now you're speaking clearly, plainly, not quite. And then they profess their faith in Jesus. We know that you know all things. Everything you speak is true. Everything you say about God is true. And that's an important statement of their faith, and they really do believe in Jesus. But they have perhaps at this point an overinflated sense of how deeply they believe. And so Jesus calls into question, you know, this zealous de declaration that they believe. Do you now believe? Verse 31. Jesus is not trying to discourage them. He's just trying to show them where things actually are. Uh, he's, going to, he's going to go on and tell them about the fact that they're going to abandon him and not stand by him, and they're going to experience a crisis of faith. And he's going to do this, again, not to discourage, but to let them know this is part of the plan. It is foreseen, and you will be restored. Time's, a time is coming when you will be scattered, and you'll leave me by myself. And Jesus concludes this whole section from 14 to 16 by saying, I have said these things to you that in me you, you may have peace. Jesus is a good pastor, shepherd. He understands that his disciples are going to undergo a spiritual trauma, a sorrow like nothing they've ever experienced before in their lives and perhaps nothing they will ever experience again. This is going to be the darkest moment of their existence. And so what he has been saying to them has been intended to prepare them for the assault that is coming. Just a few hours, it is coming. And he tells them, I've said these things to you, so you, you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Life in this world until Jesus comes back will be characterized by suffering, difficulty, and opposition to God's people. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice that double reference to world. On the one hand, world brings tribulation, it brings suffering, it brings opposition. On the other hand, world has been conquered. Jesus is victorious over the world, meaning that when the world attacks God's people, attacks their faith, it might bring grief and sorrow, but it can't finally undo them. 
because he is victorious over the world, its onslaught on the people of God will be futile. And all who belong to Jesus will be brought safely home. In other words, his victory, his conquest of the world, is our victory. Those who are his will make it safely to the other side. Or as Paul communicates more or less the same truth in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he writes, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, our destiny is not to be defeated by the world, swallowed up by its persecution, but to triumph. That's the destiny of those who belong to Jesus. So the thing that you have that is of greatest importance, the most precious thing that you have, your salvation, eternal life, that cannot be finally taken from you even by the onslaught of the world. Just as Jesus conquered, so also you will conquer. Charles Wesley's famous Easter hymn captures this well. Lives again our glorious king, where, O death, is now thy sting? Once he died our souls to save, where thy victory, O grave? Soar we now where Christ hath led, following our exalted head. Same truth. We, we follow Jesus. He is victorious, and we who belong to him will follow our exalted head, will follow him into his victory. What that does is that frees us from worrying too much about what affliction we may or may not experience in this life. If we have the confidence of sharing in Jesus' victory, that frees us from all manner of anxiety, liberates us to live in the present, not for ourselves, but for the advancement of his kingdom and his glory. For all these reasons, we have every reason to rejoice in God. Not just when things are going well, but even in the midst of life's hardships, because our king has conquered. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now, not at all on the basis of any righteousness in us, but in the name, through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the access that we have into your holy presence through Jesus. We thank you that Jesus has defeated all of our worst foes, death, Satan, judgment. Through him we have peace with you and the hope of eternal life. We pray, Father, that his victory, his resurrection would burrow deep into our hearts, cause us to be a confident, rejoicing people who live for you. Bless your word as it was proclaimed today and use it to transform us. Amen.